Well, I'd like to welcome all of you to part two of this series that we're calling Chasing Carrots. And if for some reason you weren't able to be with us last week and missed part one, um, just know that that message and all of our messages are on our website and you can catch up and get up to speed by watching or listening to it there. Um, but just a really quick review of where we were last week because everything kind of builds on itself. Last week, my goal was to sort of set a foundation um, for the entire series. So this series with a funny name is all about finding joy and happiness in life. And when I asked for a show of hands last week for how many people are looking to be happy, everyone except the one guy who was sleeping um, raised their, no, no one was sleeping. Everyone raised their hand because joy and happiness is something that we all want and that we all desire. But here's the thing. Statistics tell us that as a world and especially as a country, we are becoming less and less happy. And the thing is, if as a culture we're becoming less happy and we just continue to do things and try to find happiness and joy the way everyone else is, the likelihood of us finding it is very little to none. All we're doing is spinning our wheels at that point and chasing carrots in a hamster wheel. And so last week, what we discovered is that maybe what we need to do is to look for joy, to pursue joy in a different way. If you want to get to a different destination, you might need to travel in a different direction. And at the heart of our message last week was the reality that circumstances will never make you happy because circumstances always change. And we looked at a group of Christians in the first century that were going through some really, really hard times. And the truth of the matter is, they were experiencing grief. They were experiencing sadness. But at the very same time that they were experiencing sadness and grief and difficulty, Paul writes that they were also present tense experiencing joy, that they were rejoicing. And here's how that's done. We talked about this, that lasting joy is found by looking up, but so many of us are trying to find lasting joy by looking around. But the only place we can find joy that lasts, joy that, you know, overrides the circumstances of life is by looking up. Because when we look up, we see a truth and a reality of who we are. Talked about adoption last week, that we are adopted into God's family. And that changes everything. It doesn't take away the grief. It doesn't take away the difficult times. But it gives us a foundational layer of joy because we know where our hope and our happy and our confidence comes from. So this week as we get started, um, I wanted to start by acknowledging something that can most definitely affect your happiness and your joy. It's this. Your past. Now, unless you were born a minute ago, you have one of these. We all have a past, and whether you recognize it or not, our first fill-in for today, your past has the power to influence your present. It's true that the reality is, is we are all pulling along with us, even though none of us can see it, your past. And if people knew your past, it might better help them to understand who you are in the present, right? 
<laughs> I was trying to figure out a way for this to be memorable and to illustrate it. And so I brought a wagon along. So some of you, you know, the old people among us have a bigger wagon um, than others because we have a longer past. But even though you can't see it, every one of you dragged the wagon behind you this morning. Every one of us, no matter how old you are, whether you like it or not, have a past that comes with you everywhere you go. And, and a lot of the things in your wagon, um, you can trace back to um, growing up. So in good ways, in bad ways, in, in deep ways, and in fun ways. So for instance, um, your past probably has affected what teams you root for because dad rooted for a team, or mom did, or dad rooted for someone, and you decided not to root for that team. But your past probably affected who you root for. It maybe affected what you like to do, your hobbies, uh, whether they be sports or music or whatever it might be, or your past probably had an effect on um, how you cook. This is a cookbook. Um, does anyone know what a cookbook is? They don't really exist anymore, but I found one. So yeah, cook, how your mom cooked things or your dad grilled things or whatever it might be, affects, it affects your present. You, you bring your past along with you. How about, how about time management? I think the way you saw your parents or your family use time can affect the way you use time. And sometimes we end up making a change, right? But it still affects things. Take vacations as an example. Some of you, when you went on vacation growing up, you used every moment to see something and to go somewhere. And then some of you married people that did the exact opposite. They just sat by a beach. And now you do that. That's, that's my story. Okay, never mind. Not everyone caught it. Okay. So, um, and, you know, maybe you're handy because your dad was. There's a lot of things in our past. Um, the very first marriage you saw an up-close look at was your parents' marriage. And whether you knew it or not, you brought that wagon of the past into your marriage, for better or for worse. Or um, how, to, how to parent, that's something. Um, how about the place of Christ? Um, in your life. Um, for some of you, maybe you never went to church and it was hard to get into that habit. Or maybe for some of you, you went to church, but that was about it. Jesus or God was never spoken about at home and you found yourself maybe falling into that same pattern because you bring your past with you. Uh, I didn't have any real objects for these things, but I think how we process emotions tends to be affected by our past. So how you saw um, maybe your dad handle anger can have an effect on, or mom, how you handle anger, or what they did with worry, or how they handled sadness. I mean, these things, they, they all affect us. And, and it goes beyond just our homes. Um, maybe something that happened in college or in high school, um, is still affecting you emotionally or maybe even physically still today. Uh, maybe a previous relationship, previous marriage, you drag that, you bring that previous hurt along with you. And there's an entire series, I think, that we could have called Moving Past Your Past. And I think one of the things that 
is not this sermon is how do you work through times when you've been deeply hurt in the past and to find happy in the present. That's, that's another sermon. Um, but today, what I want to point out that oftentimes we have in our wagon is this, guilt. Guilt about something that we did or didn't do or that we said or the way we acted in the past. And the best way that I could illustrate guilt over things from the past is that it's like this, this weight. Um, for me, 30 pounds is a pretty heavy weight. For you, maybe it's 55, I don't know. But there's these weights in our past that are connected to something we did, a way we acted, a way we reacted. And we've never quite worked through it. We've never quite addressed it. And we try to ignore it. We try to pretend maybe sometimes that it's not there. That's how some of us cope with it. We try to dismiss it as not being a big deal. But internally, we know different. And what happens is it gets dropped in the wagon. And for some of us, we've been dragging a wagon filled with the weight of guilt from the past around with us. And it's affected our happy in the present. And for some of you, it pops up every once in a while when you see a particular person or you go to a certain place. For others of you, it's with you all the time and you're worn out mentally and emotionally. And you wish you could just jump in the DeLorean, go 88 miles per hour and go back and to change something. But that's impossible. And here's the thing. It's very hard to find happy when you're dealing with guilt from the past. It's very hard to find happy when you're dealing with a big weight of guilt and dragging it with you everywhere you go. And so that's what we want to unpack today. And I realize this hits everybody in a little bit of a different way, but I know there is a group of people at North Cross because they've shared it with me that have been deeply affected by guilt over something from the past. And I hope and pray that this message today is something that gives you the right footing and allows you to step forward towards happy and joy that God intended for you. So today we're going to go back 3,000 years. We're going to go back to the time of David and also someone else uh, with him as well. Their names are David and Bathsheba. Now, David, first, he was the most powerful king of Israel, the greatest king. He was rich. He was a follower of God. Uh, Bathsheba, we don't know as much about her. We know three things about her. We know that she was an Israelite citizen. We know that she was married to a man named Uriah. And I don't know how to say this, you know, in a church kind of way. So I'll just use the words of Alicia Keys in her song. This girl was on fire. Um, we know that she was a very, very beautiful woman. And so one day, I was going to sing it, but I practiced and it didn't work well. So I just said it. Anyway. So what we know is that one day, David, the king, was up on his roof, the roof of the palace, and he saw Bathsheba, and being the king, he could do whatever he wanted, and he could have anyone he wanted. And so he told his servants to go get Bathsheba, bring her to the palace, and they slept together. Now, 
you would have wished that that was as bad as it got, that David committed adultery, but it just got worse from there. A little bit later, Bathsheba found out that she was pregnant with David's child, but she's married to Uriah. Uriah is out at war where David should have been, it's recorded for us. And so what David first does is he tries to cover up what's going to be happening, that is the birth of a son, by inviting Uriah to come home from war and to spend time, in quotes, with his wife, right? But David being a righteous, I mean, sorry, Uriah being a righteous man and not wanting to uh, do that while his, his friends and countrymen are out at war, um, did not sleep with his wife. And so that didn't work. So then what David does was even worse. Um, he tells his general to put Uriah on the front lines of the battle in the fiercest area of the battle. Didn't tell him why, just told him to do it. And as you might imagine, um, what would have happened did happen, that Uriah was killed, that Uriah was dead. Now, at this point, great King David is guilty of both adultery and murder, and at the same time, he's messed up his marriage, Bathsheba's marriage, and killed someone. It makes keeping up with the Kardashians seem tame, doesn't it? This is, you know, reality TV of the worst kind. And, and the strangest thing of all is that in many ways, it seems like David got away with it, that there was no consequences for what he did. And being the king, in many ways, there wouldn't be consequences. Who's going to discipline the king? In fact, here's what's recorded after this event, and it sounds very peaceful for David. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead in battle, she mourned for him. But after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son, and life goes on. And the interesting thing is, no one really knew what truly happened to Uriah except who? Except David, right? No one knew why David put him on the front lines. No one really knew whose child would be born to Bathsheba except David and Bathsheba, and she wasn't going to say anything about it. And the interesting thing, too, is that in some ways, David even looks like the hero here. Like, here's this new widow, and David brings her into his home to take care of this new widow, but it's all sinister, and no one knows except one person. God knows. And so, about a year or so after all of this happened, the prophet Nathan is instructed by God to go, after having told Nathan what happened, to confront David. And you can just imagine David's heart sink as Nathan shared all the gory details of what David knew already for himself and what he had been carrying along with him for an entire year. Now, a few years after Nathan pointed all of this out to David, David writes a song, a psalm, that sort of gives us an inside look at to what David was feeling during the year before Nathan pointed this out. 
about what David was going through mentally and emotionally, even though from the outside looking in, it looked like everything was hunky-dory. But the problem is, David, even though no one could see it, was pulling along a wagon of his past, and there was the big weight of guilt in it. Listen to how David describes it. This is from Psalm 32, we begin with verse 3. When I kept silent, when I tried to dismiss it, when I tried to ignore it, when I tried to just, you know, cover it up and make everything look good on the outside, as we all do, we all have excuses for things we've done. Every single one of us, again, whether bigger or bad, we would rather just, you know, let people know why we did what we did and why it makes sense, dismiss it. But when I kept silent, when I wasn't honest, my bones wasted away. That's the deepest kind of hurt is when bones waste away. My bones wasted away through all my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Again, this is a poem. This is a song. And so David is using a, a very colorful language to describe how he was feeling. You know, have you ever been working real hard um, out in the, the yard or maybe at a sports event and um, you didn't eat enough, you didn't drink enough, you didn't have enough electrolytes, whatever it might be. And so you begin to feel that kind of shaky feeling where you just need to eat some potato chips or something, right? It just, you feel bad. His strength, that's how he felt. His strength was emotionally, was being sapped, just as in the heat of summer. And I'm guessing that if, if there was something he could do, he would have done it. If there was a way that he could take it back, he would have. But that's the thing with guilt. That's the thing with stuff that's been in our past that we can't so often, most of the time, in fact, what, I'd like, what I call it is, is there's this guilt trap that we're in. Because again, if we could go back in time and give the time to our kids that we wish we would have now that they're grown or whatever it might be, we would do that. Or if we could take back the way we talked to our mom or our dad or whatever it was, or if we, if we could just redo that event in college or undo that thing in our relationship with a friend or in our marriage. We would in a moment, but the trap is we can't. This is the present and that is the past. And now in many ways, we're stuck. Here's the thing that I know. When it comes to finding happy, number two, that Happy people are at peace. I want you to think through the Rolodex of your mind as the people that you would perceive, because perception's not always reality, but perceive to be happy. And more than likely, this is true about them. The people who are truly happy, they're at peace with themselves. They're at peace as far as they can control it, because we can't control it perfectly. They're at peace with other people. And ultimately, those two stem from something even more base, more foundational. They're at peace with their maker. They're at peace with God. They're at peace with the one who is in charge of all things. And there's hope for peace. 
no matter what we've been carrying around in our past. And David goes on to share that in one verse packed with so much truth for us. It's the next verse. First of all, he points out how even as he was groaning all day, even as it would seem as if his sin was against just Uriah and just Bathsheba, it wasn't Uriah's hand that was on him all day long. He felt the real presence, the real hand of a holy creator, God, on him. It's called a conscience that made it difficult for him, even in some ways more difficult than his relationship with Bathsheba and Uriah, verse 5. He says, but then, after Nathan came, then, after these things were exposed by a man of God, then, after he recognized the Lord, of course, knew it all, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. That's the first step, my friends. Some of us would like to put on the front, and, and I think I have these tendencies that I've got it all together, that I'm right most of the time, and I am, no. But we, we have this pride in us that isn't in the depths of our hearts, we know, always so honest. And the first step to healing is to acknowledge that we're not perfect. To be upfront and to be honest to God first and foremost, that we're not as good as we'd like people to believe. So David, I did not, I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. Next verse. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And the Lord's up in heaven like, oh, finally, I never knew who killed Uriah. David, thank you so much for confessing this to me so that I knew for sure what happened. Here's what you need to understand. Confession to an earthly judge helps because a lot of times you're not really sure what happened. Confession of sin to our God, our holy judge, doesn't help him know what happened. He already knows. But confession is in part so important because it reveals the posture of the heart. That confession reveals what's in the heart and the posture, that is the humility of the heart to recognize that I cannot do anything about the mess up that I am and about the things in my past that I wish I could do over. So all I'm going to do is to be honest about it and confess it. And at the root, the Hebrew word for confess here, I love it. It, it has to do with sincerity, but it also has to do with a throwing off, a getting rid of. I'm confessing and I'm mentally and I'm emotionally giving it away. I'm not going to own it anymore in the sense of trying to fix it. I'm not going to, in silence and in a little bit of dishonesty, hold on to this as if it wasn't a big deal, but I'm going to confess it. And then we hear this response. And you, Lord, he probably is thinking back to some of the words that Nathan shared with him later. You, Lord, forgave the guilt of my sin. It's not complicated. It's so simple. It's the joy of being a Christ follower 
is that the mess-ups that we are, every single one of us, when Jesus went to the cross, he paid for every single sin. And the truth of the matter is, is that I, I loved using David as an example because I don't know your past, but I'm guessing very few of you are guilty of both adultery and murder, okay? And if David could con confidently say, you forgave my sins, let me tell you, there is hope for every single one of us, for big sins, for small sins, for one-time sins, for sins we do as much as we try over and over again for sins that are out in the open and very public, and for sins that no one knows about except for me and God. When Jesus went to the cross and said it is finished, it means that we can and should no longer carry the weight of guilt around with us. And we still have a wagon of our past, but it can be a little bit lighter because the weight has been taken out of it. Our next fill-in, it's actually number three. You don't need to get rid of your guilt. Some of you have been trying. What do I do with this? You don't need to get rid of it. You can't. Jesus did for you. Jesus got rid of it for you. And it's a slight mental shift, but it is such an important shift in thinking because so many of us are trying to unlock the chains that are around our hands and our feet or whatever it might be, emotionally, spiritually, whatever, but it's the submission, it's the surrender of recognizing, I can't, but Jesus did. And over time, I've had a chance to speak with some of you, and you've been open and honest with me about some seasons of your life that you wish you could undo and redo. And I can just tell that it's something you're still in part carrying around with you. And this is going to be a little bit harsh, I think, but yet I... It's helpful because it's going to get you to where you need to be. When we know what Christ did, but decide in our hearts, intentionally or unintentionally, to still carry around guilt, I hate to say it, but I am. We are minimizing Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We're minimizing what he did by not believing that what he did is true. He does not want repentant children of God to feel guilt. He never intended for us, repentant children of God, to carry it around. He tells us to leave it at the foot of the cross and to know that it's forgiven. You don't need to get rid of your guilt because probably you can't get rid of your guilt. But to know and to believe that Jesus did for you because happy people are people who have peace now as we kind of wrap up today i want to talk about application a little bit and i've got three things that i think is somewhat of a, a checklist for you mentally and emotionally to grasp and to navigate these moments of guilt that will want to take away your happy the first thing we already talked about is this that we need to daily and regularly confess our sin to God. To check our hearts and to know in what areas and in what parts of our life where we've been trying to sort of hold on to certain things in the sense of that, oh, it's not that bad, or, oh, 
I can get through it on my own type of thing, but instead to just openly and honestly admit that I need you, Lord, I'm not perfect, and to confess, to throw off, you know, that Hebrew word, throw off those sins to God. The next thing is something that we haven't talked about yet, but is really important. Because a lot of times, although the person we've most offended is always going to be God, um, there are other people sometimes that we've offended or hurt. And sometimes that can put a wedge in a relationship. And the thing is, you can't control how they feel. You can't control how other people are going to react to you. I totally understand that. But there are things that we can do and that we can control. Um, James wrote this in the New Testament. He wrote, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. You can't control how someone you've offended in your past will receive your confession. But what we can do is we can let that person know that we're sorry. Whether it be in written form or a conversation or whatever it might be, and then we can pray for them. Some of you have told me over the years that you have a dad or a mom that never once ever said, I'm sorry. That just wasn't part of their vocabulary. And I get it, some of that is generational. But I just want you to understand how that made you feel as you look back on it especially. And the difference it can make when with your kids, with your spouse, with the people around you, you don't put on a front that I've got it all together, that I'm always right all the time, but instead I screw up too and I'm sorry. There's usually one in a marriage relationship that says sorry more easily than the other even though they're both equally at fault. <laughs> I know in my relationship, once again, this is rip on Ben Day, my wife is way quicker in saying sorry a lot of times and something I need to work on. And then the last thing. So some of the things we're struggling with from the past are pretty big deals. And you can't always just delete your memory of them. Even if you understand that Christ forgave you, there's still this event that will pop up. There's a, a person you run into, a place that you go, a picture that you see, and these memories come back, and it can drag you down. You know, in our country, we tend to memorialize certain historic places with a monument or a sign. Um, a number of years ago, I went with Carrie's family to Gettysburg, and there's this sign among others and different monuments there that commemorate and remind us of things that have happened in our past. If you can't tear down the monument, then rewrite the plaque. And what I mean by that is this. In every battle, I think, there's usually a winner and there's a loser. And we can choose in our monuments from the past that we can't necessarily totally tear down. Are we going to celebrate the victory or are we going to celebrate the defeat? And maybe in the past, when we've thought about that situation or that circumstance, we've always had the plaque written in our hearts of how much guilt we feel and how bad we screwed up. But on that same monument, there can be a plaque to how deep our screw-up was to know just 
that God's grace was even greater. That your monument that you can't totally tear down, if you rewrite the plaque, it reads all about Christ's grace and Jesus' love and his victory for you. That when you remember the past, you remember how much you've been loved and how much you've been forgiven. And God, give me the strength to make a change here moving forward. Because happy people are at peace. And God has given you, through his son Jesus, every right to be at peace. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I don't know what all gets stirred up in people's hearts and minds in a message like this. I pray that we all heard it and we all took it to heart because there is something in all of us that has difficulty just admitting our sin and confessing. And yet, Lord, that is the pathway to peace. That is the pathway to happy. And Lord, so I just pray for this group of people, including me, to have an extra dose of humility, to acknowledge that we are sinful, that we've disobeyed, but to rewrite the plaque of that monument, to read in our hearts all about God's grace.